Hi everyone, this is Karen Becker from Acuity Brands, and I welcome you to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We've created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. This is Lindsay Baker. And Kira Gould. And uh, we're very happy to be here once again, chatting and catching up about all the incredible work going on out there that women are doing in the world of uh, design and buildings and sustainability. So before we get too deep into things, just wanted to check in. I don't even know what week of the lock pandemic lockdown we're in now, Kira. Do you know? This is like I believe this is week five. Five? Yeah. <laughs> It's weird. I don't even, I, don't, I, I have seen some people in their windows, they have like the little tallies of the numbers of days. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm not counting. I'm not counting quite that closely. Yeah. Not yet anyway. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot. Uh, but yeah, somewhere, somewhere in that, I feel, feel like um, it's definitely a new, a new phase of all of this for us, but still kind of that same, same period of being home and waiting and thinking about what the changes are going to be like and all of that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm starting to read more and more really intelligent stuff getting written. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's true. There's a lot of thinking about that going on right now. And it's, it's refreshing and inspiring to see it actually, because it start, I think it's a little bit helpful to start imagining I mean, there's still a number of unknowns about where this is all going, but yeah. it's helpful to see where, you know, some of the pathways forward. So. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. And actually in the spirit of, of women's leadership, two of the pieces, I actually just posted them on my LinkedIn, but two of the pieces that I've read recently that I loved, one is Arundhati Roy wrote a great piece in the Financial Times that you can read for free right now. Yep. Sort of about India. Did you read this one? I did. It was oh. fantastic. So good, so good. This idea that the pandemic is a portal. I think, I think you know, you, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but there's this really uncomfortable thing that's starting to happen where some of us are seeing how the pandemic and all of this tragedy has this note of optimism to it. And I find it very frustrating sometimes that that is oversimplified as some sort of a sense that this is like the change that we all needed Oh, yes. To tackle climate change is really not that at all. It's horrible for climate change it, in many ways. It's not a good, it's, right. we're, we're not making progress right now. <laughs> this is not positive news. Um, but right. it is like, you know, it is a reset mentally. And she captures it pretty well, I think. It's like, you know, just to say, if we choose to take this opportunity to reset how we live and how we treat each other and how we treat the planet, that would be really great. And this is a pretty good opportunity to do that, you know, but it's not. Right, right. No, it's not. not did that already. Right. <laughs> it's a potential upside, but it still would require a big lift, I think. Um, yeah. 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 And I'm sort of starting to watch those little glimmers of people trying to figure out what that big lift could look like, like right now yeah. and the stimulus bills and these kinds of things. It's yeah. The, one of the other pieces that I read, the other one that I um, posted today was uh, Rihanna Gunn Wright um, in the New York Times talking about the Green New Deal and its relationship to the stimulus package. And yep. um, yeah, really good, important 
perspective there. Again, not overly optimistic, but certainly motivated to try to um, uh, take our circumstances and do good things yep. with them. So if, at this point, if people are listening to this, hopefully those pieces, you know, <laughs> will have already been Started acted to come upon, together. But, right, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but I still hope um, that people get something out of them. It's just a lot of great wisdom. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, I, I feel like I'm also noticing my consumption patterns going down, which has been really interesting. Is this happening to you? Or do you feel like you're like, are you buying more stuff? Um, my, that kind of consumption is definitely going down. I my food consumption, on the other hand, is not. <laughs> so yeah, there's two sides of that for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I, I'm weirdly in the position of having time because I am essentially unemployed, uh, of being able to get exercise every day. And I think Fantastic. I'm one of the only ones not feeling the, like the, someone referred to it like in a similar way to the freshman 15. As the like COVID-19. COVID. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have achieved it. I'm working on the, whatever the next platform yeah. is. <laughs> I think we all get to be generous with ourselves right now. So yes. whatever, whatever we need to do. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm eating well. I feel very fortunate and, and yes. um, generally. Me too. Like it is sort of a it's an emotional highlight of days for us. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of highlights, let's introduce our guest for this week. I'm so excited. Once again, very excited. I keep getting so excited. It's like such a great <laughs> opportunity to have, to have these uh, badass women um, that we get to talk to them for a while and learn all these incredible things. So, um, this week, I'm particularly excited about Sarah Golden uh, from GreenBiz. Sarah is uh, the energy, Senior Energy Analyst and Conference Chair for Verge Energy at GreenBiz. And I have been so delighted to, uh, to meet Sarah and to start reading all of her uh, pieces and just have been so impressed by her unique perspective in our community that I thought she would be an incredible person to have join us and talk about all sorts of things relating to energy, but also what it means to be a journalist these days and in this landscape. So uh, with all of that, welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you, Lindsay. It's so great to be here. And hi, Kira. I'm, I'm really excited to be on the podcast, too. I, this project that you're doing is could not happen at a better time. We really need to be focusing on all the amazing women that are driving forward the sector. So thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks. so glad you're here. Yeah. Well, I was hoping, Sarah, that you might start by telling us a little bit about sort of how and why you chose to become a writer, analyst, strategist in the energy industry. Maybe just tell us a little bit about your path to where you are now. Sure. I was delighted when you invited me on to speak as a journalist because in many ways I feel like it's been a long journey for me to come back to journalism. Journalism is really what I wanted to do in high school. I grew up in, um, in Southern Oregon and it's a little town called Ashland, and it's a very left-leaning town, and the environmental movement is really strong, and organizing is really strong, and I was always really driven by those environmental ideals and wanted journalism to be the tool that I did that by. 
And uh, so then I went to college at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington, and at the advice of a mentor that I had early in life, who was an amazing journalist, uh, she told me that when you want to do journalism, don't study journalism in undergrad, study what you want to write about. So I majored in politics and environmental studies before ultimately going to journalism grad school at USC, where I studied on broadcast communication. And it was like a really strange time to be going into journalism school. Um, it was 2009 or 2010, somewhere in there, when journalism was really falling apart. It was at the time when all old business models fell apart and there was no line of sight on what new business models potentially could be. And I remember my family at the time sort of asking, why are you doing this again? I remember one Thanksgiving, my, my aunt asked me like, isn't this like majoring in buggy whips? But it really felt like the right <laughs> thing to do. Um, and after grad school, I moved to London um, for a while and was doing some freelancing and working with an organization that did uh, stakeholder advocacy work for the UN talks at the time they were working on Rio Plus 20 and developed a relationship with a mentor who was the environmental correspondent at the BBC uh, named Richard Black. And Richard was great. And he also made me realize that environmental journalism was pretty broken or the way that he talked about it made it sound like it was very event centric. And mm -hmm. at that time I had translated my passion from just the environmental movement to a more specific climate movement, which came about really when I was in college. And I was just aware of how much going to a news organization and reporting on journalism was failing to really capture the pervasive trends that we're trying to address. And that led me to going to a communications firm because I wanted to um, really be making news about the things that I felt were important instead of being a journalist that's responding to the things that are being honestly shaped by communications firms, but also assigned by editors. And so I spent six years doing campaigning and doing uh, really, as I said, making news around things that I felt were important. And um, I'm still a huge fan of communications and think that it's a huge, it's, I think, the most important thing for the longevity of individual organizations, aside from development, because telling your story effectively is the most important thing. Um, but ended up leaving that firm a couple of years ago to accept a role at GreenBiz, where I'm using a lot of those same tools. I'm taking, I'm tracking trends, and I'm having conversations with really smart and interesting people to try to figure out what conversations should we be having to really move forward the clean economy. So it's fun to be invited on to be speaking as a journalist, because I feel like that's where I began. And it's been a long time since I really thought of myself as a journalist again and really just thinking about the best way to tell stories to be moving forward this movement. Yeah, it, uh, there's so many things to talk about in that, but I think one of them that um, I just want to talk to you a little bit more about is this whole, it's the fact that we find ourselves in a moment when communications and storytelling and the coverage of like how, how you talk about, how you frame stories, things that are happening in the world to be probably one of those like critical paths to a better future as it relates to climate change and i it honestly has only been in the past year that i've come to understand that some of our most powerful movement leaders are journalists and writers and people who specialize in communications partially because of that it's like at this point mm -hmm. in some ways it feels to me like 
you have plenty of like solar entrepreneurs and things like that doing that work and that's great um and it is helping helping and doing a lot of incredible things but the more i learn about the people doing the work there's a lot of organizers you know etc cetera, etc cetera, but there's just so many writers and I, I had no when i was in undergrad and i was thinking about like environmental studies stuff it would never i would never have thought that one of those critical groups of people that you have to have in a movement like this is journalists so i'm very impressed that you <laughs> are taking that on and and very happy that you've come to like the juncture that you're in because yeah it does sort of feel like you're able to to shape um to shape a conversation right about clean energy about climate change about all of these things um it's like yeah, 100% yeah yeah it's been it's um to me it just seems like those storytellers are what makes gives us the inspiration to understand what we need to do and you mentioned how there's different people that work in technical fields and there's people that are building businesses and working in ngos and all these different pieces and this is true with every movement, but I think of it as especially true when we talk about sustainability and the clean economy. We need all of those players. And if people are too much in their own silos, I think that they forget that we're actually working on the same thing. I've seen a lot of competition between sectors that are actually wanting the exact same thing at the end of the day. And of course there's limited resources and there's reasons for that, but it's the stories in my view that really connect all of these pieces mm -hmm. and give us a path to move forward and if that's done well then that can be incredibly powerful yeah yeah so okay yeah. so question for you for those people who are thinking about journalism or writing as a profession whether they're just emerging into the working world or uh you know considering maybe even just writing as a as a part-time thing what do you think they need to know or be good at or be interested in caring about that's important for for writing for journalism yeah that's a great question i think that in my professional journey what a journalist is has varied so much when i first started out it was like a person working at a news outlet and of course we're all writing and all producing content at this point and i would say for that idea of being a journalist you really need to have a commitment to doing it right to going deeper than just putting together thoughts and really um, approaching everything with this with an open curiosity and lots of questions and try to check whatever your assumptions were originally and then also really have to love it because people don't become journalists for the money or for the you know fame it's like you really need to have that fire in your belly to want to be finding those stories. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. And speaking of the fire in your belly, I, I um, one of the things I picked up on when I started reading your work um, is that, because I read a lot of uh, writing about green business and it took me a minute, but I started to think like, oh, she, she's like, she knows what's going on. Like she understands the power structures and the, in particular, unfair power structures that we're up against uh, around the world and various industries and political forces and things. And I and so I want to ask you, like, basically, what have you 
in your, can you tell us a little bit about how your past work has influenced what you're writing about now um, in, in terms of the, I guess when I say past work, I sort of mean some of the communications work that you were doing in campaigns and things like that. Yeah, and first of all, thank you for saying that. That's an incredible compliment, so thank you. And I would say that the communications firm that I worked at had a lot of campaigning, and we worked um, exclusively with foundations and nonprofits. So it was a communications firm where we weren't working on elevating products or companies and things like that. And because of that, it really allowed me to have a pure moral compass on what needs to happen and the direction we should be moving in. And I really see the role of these campaigns and direct actioners to be holding the feet to the fire and maintaining and be, being really unreasonable with any kind of compromise, which is what we need at this moment. And there's been a transition for me going from from that absolute, this is the action we need to see, to working with the companies that are trying to figure out how to get from there to here at GreenBiz. And in some ways it's frustrating because I see the movement in the public or in the private sector to be really too slow. I find that it's the, the process is very incremental and um, I see my role as always trying to push them to do more. But I come from that with this this campaigning background and this understanding of this is really what we need to be moving towards. And I'm so thankful for the people that keep doing that campaign work and continue to prod all these institutions and individual organizations to keep moving and keep doing more. And it's interesting because I have a lot of friends that still work in that campaign side of the aisle. And when I talk to them, I I never think that what they're pushing for is wrong, but I do feel like I've developed a little bit more of like a pragmatic understanding of the structural challenges for these giant organizations to be moving. And I've really come to respect the fact that at these giant corporations, the people that are working in sustainability and energy totally get it. They are some of the smartest, most passionate people in climate and clean energy. And they're working every day to really turn the ship a little bit and then we need all of those other campaigners to keep prodding them forward. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's, a, and it's, um, I think it is really important, like having those two perspectives of, of having worked with campaigners and then also having worked with the corporate folks. I, I um, you know, <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of stories of these people who are working on the inside of corporations and, and how, I mean, it varies. I, I was watching a documentary recently when uh, there was a, a environmental executive from an oil company talking about a particular issue, and it was a bit of an expose. And you could tell, like this, the guy was—he was just basically telling the party line, and it wasn't very impressive. But uh, but it, there are many people working on the inside of corporations who could not be further from that attitude. Um, some who I think even more increasingly these days are willing to get out there in public and say, I'm trying to make an organization better, you know? Um, yeah. And I don't think it's actually doing that well yet, but that's my job is to try to make it better. And I, um, so yeah, I, I, I think it is, it's true. We have to kind of understand who those folks are, but, but nonetheless, I think your writing is doing it a great job of making sure that everyone knows that just because those jobs are hard doesn't mean that we need to 
equivocate for them um, when they don't succeed because unfortunately you know there's some imperatives physical imperatives of climate change so you know it, they may not always succeed and it may be a hard job but like you know it's yeah <laughs> and one thing i really notice within companies is i often hear people starting from where we are and thinking what's a path forward that is is oriented in the right direction instead of thinking where do we need to go and how do we back map from there? Because I think if we start with what the goal is, what with what the science-based limits are, and I think that's one of the things that, if anything, the, that the coronavirus has taught us is that reality is real and all these other sort of ways that we measure things don't make sense when you are up against the actual science limitations. And this is something you mentioned, the oil industry, and I have a special relationship with the oil industry. Back in my campaigning days, I ran a social media campaign that just focused on being a thorn in the side of the Western States Petroleum Association. That campaign was called Stop Fooling California, and I worked with a coalition of other NGOs and essentially was just doing the negative campaigning so that they could focus on solutions and not get that bogged down in fighting all the misinformation that was coming from the Western States Petroleum Association about California uh, climate policy. And after running this for three years and having a whole lot of fun doing it, I go over to GreenBiz where I meet WISPA in a more professional capacity and the president, who knows me well from all the campaigning that I did for years and years, and suddenly starting a conversation where the oil industry, specifically WISPA, is saying, what do we need to do to get a spot at the table to be part of the solution? How can environmentalists include us in what we need to do for the transition? And one thing I keep going back to telling them is you need to have realistic, a realistic path forward for how we can meet the goals of the climate movement, how we can realistically meet what is laid out by the IPCC. And if you're just taking baby steps now, then that really isn't enough. And so I've had a lot of fun with these different points of dialogue and WISPA keeps pulling me in to have conversations with different representatives from oil companies to basically repeat myself again and again. And I've, I've developed a new passion for just arguing with people at oil industries, the difference between what is comfortable for them to do versus what they ultimately need to do to be aligned with climate principles. Sarah, that is so intriguing to me. Um, I love that dynamic that you had with them and how that has shifted. Um, and it relates to something I wanted to ask you about, which is um, you've been writing recently about energy markets and the pandemic. And I'm so intrigued by your perspective on that and, um, and actually, and your ability to frame that even as we, you know, it's, there's so many unknowns right now, but you're, you're able to frame that in um, a way of understanding what might be happening and how different dynamics are going to intersect with each other. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about just what's going on with energy markets and companies as they react to this moment. Yeah, totally. I, it's so much is happening right now with energy <laughs> markets. It's really, really crazy. And you noted at the top that how you're just noticing some more thoughtful writing around what's happening in the pandemic. And the first couple of weeks, what I really saw is was a terrible ratio between the signal and the noise around energy and the pandemic. And I'm sure this was true for every sector, but I read a lot more things about energy. And I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago and they wanted to talk to me about what 
this meant for the energy markets and renewable procurements. And I read a whole bunch of different articles and I started to have this feeling of, didn't I already read this? Because I was realizing how every article was kind of saying some version of the same thing. And this insistence to be answering this giant question, we really can't be talking about this without mentioning the COVID crisis. But at the same time, right now we have a whole lot of questions and not a lot of answers. I think from a high level, Uh, The trajectory that we've seen over the last eight years or so of high levels of adoption of clean energy will will continue. Um, And that's largely because we have seen in the last decade that this is no longer because we should do it. It makes economic sense. And the reason that the private sector has been embracing clean energy at the end of the day is because it made sense to the CFOs from a financial point of view that renewables are just cheaper on a levelized basis than dirty fuel generation. And so it's really nice to be able to do that and then tell your employees, oh, we are acting on climate and be able to put out some press releases and all of that. But at the end of the day, if it didn't already make financial sense, then they wouldn't be doing it. And this disruption at a in in a long-term view doesn't change this economics. In the short term, I've been hearing that, you know, People are definitely losing money on PPAs and the wholesale market is incredibly low and all of that. So it's it's complicated in that way. But I think in the long term, um, this will sort of be, we'll see this as a blip. But I also think that right now is a really important time for us to be fighting for how we want to shape what comes next. Mm-hmm. It's we're at this sort of this point of such disruption that I feel like we need to fight for like the phoenix we want to see that rises from these ashes because we're going to be rebuilding every single system out there and what i've been seeing are incumbent energy forces and the dirty energy forces wasting absolutely no time and looking Mm -hmm. for ways to have this crisis benefit them from like bailouts on assets such as natural gas facilities that are down in Texas that were already loaded with toxic debt but like didn't make any sense and now they want to be bailed out for that because this is a convenient moment and they're they're doing a lot worse as a result of this but they weren't doing well before and things like relaxing um, clean air regulations and emission Mm -hmm. standards and pushing through pipelines and so meanwhile it seems like what the clean energy community should be doing is really advocating for how much advanced energy can be moving forward the economy on the other side of this and be optimizing for the world that we want to see. I agree with what you're saying before that this isn't like a rosy outlook. This wasn't this wasn't the way I would have chosen to approach this, but it is an amazing moment where we can kind of stop and think about how do we want to shape systems that um, that were in place before. And I don't want to just make up for lost time in, in broken systems, but really push for how we want to shape, how we want to power the world moving forward. Right. Well, you also recently, although it was, I guess it was almost a month ago, which seems like much, much longer, but it was only a month ago, you wrote a piece about women's leadership. And in fact, it was about feminine leadership qualities. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, it is funny that um, five years ago was only last month. It does feel like (laughs) that was such a long time ago. But yeah, that piece was really about, as you noted, feminine leadership qualities, which is not just about 
people that identify as women. This can be any type of person, but the types of traits that are considered feminine leadership traits. And it's well documented that these traits help organizations as far as uh, for team buildings, organizations that embrace feminine leadership perform better, um, they're, they have better employee retention. And this goes beyond anything that I did in this article. So it's on, it's looking at a lot of different studies that have already established the way that feminine leadership is important for organization, which include things like empathy and vulnerability and inclusiveness and, and um, being patient and having sort of a long-term view. And what this piece was doing specifically, as I spoke to my, um, my friend and all around just an amazing person that I admire so much, Sarah Shanley Hope, who is the executive director at the Solutions Project, which is um, this teeny organization, but is, has been so influential in the clean energy movement. It was actually the first organization that, that elevated the idea of 100% for the 100% which when they started saying that people laughed them out of rooms and then here we are like six years later and it's basically the unifying principle for the entire climate movement and that really started with the solutions project with sarah shanley hope at the helm and the idea that she brought up is that this feminine leadership in addition to being great for organizations is uniquely needed at this moment for the clean energy transition because that kind of flexibility is really required for an unprecedented transformation and it sort of requires a capacity to nav navigate change mm -hmm. and really navigate like unexpected non-linear situations which is what we see in these crises you can't just like create a plan set it and then hope that that works out when everything is in flux and then also that innovation really comes from diverse perspectives and getting more people around the table to be thinking about how we can include all communities in this. If we're just turning to the same kind of leadership, then we're gonna be forgetting a lot of communities or not really knowing what communities are facing. And then also that point about collaboration and inclusiveness is so necessary to have really a systemic change. Yeah. Right. It's, I, I thought it was a great piece. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it, it reminded me too, it just, I saw a piece recently, just a week or so ago in Forbes, um, which was taking a look at countries that had the best coronavirus responses and what they had in common. And they cited seven countries that had female leaders and talked a little bit about some of those characteristics, the truth and the um, even love and empathy as a factor of their communication and all these factors about how they make decisions, who they rely upon, how flexible they are with that, and then how they're communicating it. And it just remind it was such a parallel to me because of course all of those female leaders are also um, doing rather well in the energy and climate side of things as well. <laughs> So, of course, yeah, of course they are. Absolutely. <laughs> that that makes perfect sense. And I think that there's there's been a lot of people smarter than me that have talked about the parallels between COVID and the climate crisis and um, what we can really draw from the COVID crisis for the climate crisis. What lessons can we learn from all of that? And I think that um, 
it, it, it's hard to say whether the broader world will see whether these connections are obvious, which is something that I think that this, that this community should really always be emphasizing and driving home. But one of the things that comes up again and again is this idea that time is the enemy to both. And if the sooner we act, the less impacts there will be. So COVID happened, unfolded so incredibly quickly. It was just like in a couple of weeks, everything got turned upside down. But my understanding and the way that this is spoken about is climate change will be many times worse and then unfold a lot slower and is already unfolding slower. Mm -hmm. So I think that those parallels between how feminine leadership traits are better equipped to handle the COVID crisis is the same reason why feminine leadership traits yep. are necessary for the climate crisis. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that idea. I, I mean, it's sort of depressing uh, to think about it in, in a sense that like, what we need in times of great change and unpredictability is female leadership. And that, you know, what we have had is a, a you know, arguably, at least in some parts of the world, a, a less uh, unpredictable to a more stable time and, and male leadership. <laughs> it's like, oh, just, just when things get crazy, it's like bring in the women. Uh, but, um, you know, <laughs> Yeah. And I've heard that theory of that, how uh, women leaders are often brought into untenable situations, which is, yeah. Yeah. you know, like yeah. oh, Teresa God. May kind of thing. Where... Really. One of my favorite pieces that I've ever read about female leadership um, is basically about the COOs of Silicon Valley being disproportionately female and supporting um, often much younger men who, so like the classic example is the Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg dynamic of having someone that's sort of like a mother that cleans up your messes and makes you better. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, that dynamic is very real in Silicon Valley in particular, but um, the, it was just a great piece. It was really exposing like, should women really take these jobs? Is this really something, is this a relationship that we, or is this a type of leadership that we want to promote right. in the world or not? Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's crazy and, stuff. And there's another uh, sort of meta level when we're talking about a clean energy transition, which is the idea of transitioning power. You know, we're, here we are wanting to change how we power society. It seems like we can start with changing how we power the institutions. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. That happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, with all of that, like optimism and pessimism wrapped up, I, I want to ask you just in taking a step back, how do you feel that we are doing as a climate movement? Um, what do you think the major areas are that we need to be doing better at? In other words, like the lack of progress areas. Um, and you know, what, what are you hopeful for? Yeah. So it's so funny. I've, I've thought about the personality trait of somebody that works in the climate movement and by and large, the people that I've worked with are very fun, loving, interesting, happy overall people that also have a very dark outlook for the future. There's kind of yeah. this, this feeling of like, well, we're screwed. Yay, let's go. Let's grab a drink. <laughs> and um, it's, it's a community that I really like being, counting myself part of because of this way of constantly working towards something that 
that is so necessary to fight for and then also mixed in with how can we have fun while doing it and celebrate what we're doing because ultimately if a movement doesn't have that element that feels rewarding and and feels profound then it's going to be hard to get support for it um so some things that we've done well i would say is finding solutions um, we have so many solutions already available. We have so many more coming in. We, I often think about in the climate movement, we're like winning, just not fast enough. And since I've gotten involved in clean energy, we've gone from it being a thing that would be nice to do to something that just makes economic sense to be pursuing and continue to, to press on. What I think we're not doing very well at is the type of bold and audacious things we really need to see and this is something that i'm always struggling with working with these giant companies because i think we're too quick to accept these this incrementalism and that there's a real moral hazard in it and i'm always walking that line between celebrating these these baby steps of organizations because i want other organizations to see that it's possible that people are doing it that it's a Attractive, that you may even get a little bit of good PR if, you, if you're a leader in it. But then at the same time, I don't want to make companies feel like they're doing enough just because they've taken these baby steps. And by and large, I'm not seeing any company that is doing enough. So I think that um, one thing we need to be seeing more of is really holding the powers that be to account and be pushing for pre-competitive um, policy that can really help set the stage for this because it doesn't work to just want companies to do this on an individual basis. That's you know just individualizing the problem at the company level and that's not the type of bold change that we need. And I think a big reason why we haven't seen a lot of these changes is because there's more risk associated with organizations that, um, that act and alienate people than organizations that don't act. So I think by and large, we need to make it dangerous for organizations to not be out in front. I think it's kind of crazy how many um, individual organizations have taken on 100% renewable energy targets, but then don't support 100% clean energy policies at the state or national level or aren't supporting climate policies because it doesn't influence their operations directly enough. And I think what we really need to be doing is not accepting that anymore and not accepting all of the sort of false equivalencies that are put out there and all of the, the excuses of why companies aren't doing bolder things now because we just don't have time. Right. That's totally true. Um, there's, I mean, there's nothing like the urgency under which we're living at this moment. Um, and I'm so intrigued to hear you use those terms, bold and audacious. Um, and I do think that's what we're looking for from companies, it'll be, it would be great to sort of flip the story, like you're saying, and make it dangerous for them not to have that kind of behavior on all fronts. Um, but in that spirit, um, maybe you could tell me, tell us a little bit about um, who you are most inspired by, who, who are the people that are, people or companies even, that are being bold and audacious, as it were. Um, you mentioned Sarah Shanley Hope, of course, um, when we talked about that piece. But who else is there? Climate movement leaders, built environment leaders, anyone really that, um, you know, that inspires you? Yeah, absolutely. So I am most inspired by people who are inclusive and lift up others around them. And I think there's a little bit of like, 
like a cool kid epidemic in the climate movement. Um, That's and awesome. And it, it may be actually every single place, and this is just where I notice it because it's where I spend the most amount of time. And I really enjoy people and find people inspiring who understand how everybody fits in and contributes to one another and realizes we're not in competition and welcomes newcomers that have fresh ideas. So I want to give a shout out to three people for that. And one is my uncle, who is Casey Golden. Um, he's the chair of 350.org and is the policy director mm. at, um, at Climate Solutions up in Seattle, but is just like this brilliant person that is so good at listening and connecting and is just like a great collaborator and makes everybody feel loved and smarter for having talked to him. And um, I also, my colleague, uh, Shauna Rappaport, who is the executive director at Verge, she just has this perspective and um, a way of including everyone when she, when she's, she's an amazing public speaker and an amazing facilitator and has a way to really draw out meaning from what different people say and distill things. And it's like, is the best person I've ever seen at being able to facilitate these larger conversations. And somebody that I haven't met, but I have recently been really inspired by is Emily Atkins, who's the creator of the Heated Newsletter, yeah. um, which is, yeah, I just love what she's doing. And I think one of the things that I just really respect about her is how much she just like owns her own voice and her perspective. And I think that that's really like emblematic of that kind of courage that we need. And as I was thinking about this, I was, there's, I feel like in the professional world, there's, there's always this push to get people to like fall into these specific norms. And I think back to like one of the first articles I wrote at GreenBiz, I used cool in an article. I said that this like technology was cool. And there was a comment that somebody posted on this article that essentially said that like, it was like, it is unprofessional to be using the word cool and it undermines your credibility when you're using words like that. Wow. And I kind of had this reaction that was kind of, I mean, first it's like, okay, boomer. But also <laughs> just like a history of old white men telling up and coming women that they need to like conform their language from, we saw this with Valley Girls and we saw this with Vocal Fry. And I feel like it's the same sort of push to like homogenize tone that it is also homogenizing ideas and mm -hmm. and limiting what like what is possible like no don't conform to how you're supposed to be acting and then and then look out from this box and i think that if we start embracing people's tone and the way that they communicate things and the way that they see things and their perspectives in these sort of unfiltered ways that it's it's you know going to be really essential to be finding the new perspectives and solutions and I just love the way that Emily Atkins newsletter owns that. I heard an interview that she did with um, Bill McKibben a couple weeks ago for their, their podcast that is about the COVID crisis and climate crisis being kind of the same fight. And just hearing her talk to Bill McKibben, I was kind of like, can you talk to Bill McKibben that way? Like, this is so informal. <laughs> this is so chatty. And she was like, you know, giving him a hard time and all of that. And I feel like that's the type of confidence that we should really be inspiring within all young women that are that see a problem and want to address it right? yeah yeah no I totally totally agree I it's so 
it's so shocking to me to think about. I mean, obviously we hear that type of thing all the time that someone takes time out of their day to write a message to you to tell you yeah. how you should write when you're a professional <laughs> journalist. And like, like I just don't, that that's the part of it that always sort of boggles my mind is like, I understand it might be jarring to hear uh, someone articulate themselves in a as a member of a different generation or a different uh, socioeconomic group or whatever it is than you. But like, wh why do you feel like they need to speak like you do in order <laughs> for, to, for you to believe them? How does totally. that, where does that come from? That, that sense of confidence, obviously it comes from privilege, but uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and it, it marginalize, marginalizes people that didn't have access to the same the same history that you did and I there's there at one point years ago I saw this one study that was talking about how that especially young women but young people generally that innovate in language actually go on to be some of the most uh, successful and and um, boundary breaking people out there and that there's actually a connection between this evolution in how we say things and evolution of how we think about things mm -hmm. and then meanwhile there's a way that like people over the age of 30 they lose the ear for being able to adapt into new language so it's not just like it's not just a parallel it's actually related to be embracing how people talk about things and not marginalize them because that isn't how we were taught when we were growing up yeah oh, man Right. <laughs> so so much so much stuff that is fun to fight against that that part i really i really enjoy <laughs> trying to move past that it's very easy to subvert those norms um well um with that thank you sarah i feel like i should have something to say that like i, I wish i could wrap this up with some you know very millennial slang uh for our listeners, just to re-emphasize your point. Um, just to show how hip we are. Yeah, yeah, we're super cool. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, sadly, I'm the worst millennial at, at those kinds of, um, like adopting the new terms. I still really struggle, even though I've lived in Oakland for, well, I, I guess I should just say like in general, I'm like the last person to use the cool new word but I've learned, I've, I was born a nerd, so it's okay. I'm, I'm yeah. right there with you, yeah. <laughs> cool, though, was pretty, anyway. Uh, I know, and yeah. cool sounds old to me now. Yeah, like, exactly. It's it actually cool. like a 90s thing. Yeah. Yes, um, I am not a millennial, and I use cool all the time, so that actually uh, shouldn't yeah. really speak exactly. to her. Yeah, it's way past. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Sarah. It's been such a pleasure to have you uh, on the podcast. That's been lovely. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is it for this week for us on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you, our listeners. Please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters and it helps people find us. And we will talk to you next week. <laughs>